This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is Steve Weens. He's a speaker, writer, and the host of This Good Word podcast. Today, we'll be talking about his book, Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing some time with me. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be with you. In your book, you give yourself away, although I don't know if this made it to the final version of your book because I got an advanced copy. But on my page 30, it says, I will probably present several fake versions of myself to you until I feel safe. And I need plenty of verbal affirmation if this relationship is going to work. So I don't know if our pre <laughs> I don't know if our pre conversation helped enough <laughs> that you feel comfortable. But um, your your book is very honest. And um, I just love how you get down to very personal things, but you also have some very practical ways that we can not just, I think, not just rekindle our faith, but really find intimacy with God and really even ourselves. So um, what do you have to say about the the several versions of you and how you found that out? <laughs> oh, that's so great. I'm so glad that you started there. Um that's absolutely true about me. I'm an Enneagram three. I don't know if you're an Enneagram person, Lisa, but Enneagram threes typically intuitively, and it's, it's a maniacal uh, gift and curse that we have, but we can sort of intuitively figure out what we need to be in any given space or room in order to be acceptable and accepted. And then our temptation is to be that no matter what the cost in order to be affirmed, accepted, and so I think that's, you know, that's what I mean um, by that. But that's also, that has been one of the most helpful um, pathways to God for me, actually. Like when I can realize, oh my, this, I'm, <laughs> I've just presented a fake version of myself. Um, and that could even be like the, the really vulnerable guy who's, you know, super Brene Brownish. I mean, and <laughs> right. But, but, but that can also be a somewhat fake curated version. But mm. when I can, when I can notice that I'm doing that, and this is really mindfulness, right? When I can notice when I'm doing that, and then instead of judging myself harshly, just imagine I'm watching myself like on a TV show. That's a total Pete Holmes thing that I, that I got. Like, imagine you're mm. watching your life and you like that character, you know, that character is awesome. And it's so quirky and so darling that he insists on presenting his curated self in front of every different crowd. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, maybe someday he'll, he'll be at peace with who he is. And when I can, mm. when I can accept myself that way, and when I can be with God with that and experience uh, grace in that moment without judging myself, I can really experience the divine in a, in a new way. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, it really does. I, I think what you're talking about, too, is kind of there's a there's a weakness to every strength and, and some of the strength of being able to to notice uh, how you might need to 
curate yourself, somebody else might be completely oblivious to, and you might understand, oh, this, this being this way would help in this situation. It's kind of the strength side. Of course, the weakness side would be like, I'm just going to adjust, you know, until I can't remember who I actually am. But it really, I think, comes from maybe originally or something, the, the gift of being able to empathize or adjust in situations to meet a need head on. That's that's a kind way to look at it. Thank you. <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I think I agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you that every strength is also a shadow and every shadow mm-hmm. is also a strength. The, the, those two are just, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. And so yeah. everything that you're really great at is you're also going to take it too far or not far enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I just, I, I think every, anytime I hear someone else describe mm-hmm something that I tend to probably overly think as a weakness, as potentially a strength, I feel encouraged. Mm. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. A little bit of what you said about um, kind of imagining, uh, this is funny because this has gotten to, I don't know if it's just getting older um, or what what it is, but what you said about Pete Holmes kind of imagining that you're watching some like, quirky underdog on TV that, that is really you and how you would, if, if that was the case, you would kind of be endeared to that quirky, like in my case, it'd be like, Oh, look at that quirky loser trying the best she can, you know? (laughs) And, but I wouldn't hate that person. I'd just be like, I'd just be like, I hope it works out. You know, like I, I hope, I hope that person gets what she needs. Right. And, and yet, um, you know, we can be like super, bashing on ourselves and judgmental and, and cruel. And actually his idea of kind of putting in some distance and saying, you know, um, I think Technocon talks about looking at yourself as a five-year-old child mm-hmm. is kind of with, how would you look at a five-year-old child if you didn't look at them with real kindness and compassion to be like basically a monster? So if you can look at yourself like that, um, then all of a sudden things kind of turn over in, in new ways for you to have grace for yourself that you might not have had before. And there's something about that that's sunk in much more deeply as I've gotten older and maybe just understood my weaknesses more deeply. I, well, you said that so eloquently um, because I think that's, that's some of what the Buddhist principle of detachment is really all about. And it's, it's the idea that most of our suffering comes from not necessarily what's happening to us in the moment, but how we're holding and responding to what's happening to us in the moment. And so to the degree that we unconsciously beat ourselves up for every single thing that we do, even slightly wrong, that's Mm. what's causing the suffering. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that little game of watching your, imagining that you're watching (laughs) yourself as a character on TV is just a really brilliant way to detach from, um, your own self-judgment because it, like you said, it automatically puts you in the frame of mind where, you know, if you're watching a character on TV, you don't, you wouldn't even like that character if they were always getting it right. You would hate that character, you know, like that's when you would hate the character, but when they're kind of struggling with something and when they're, when they're sort of even, um, I heard someone say recently, now I'm almost 50. Okay. I I turned 50 this November. So it's a very like, it's a looming date, (laughs) but also like I heard someone say, you know, at some point in your middle life, 
there just will be certain things that you just will never really overcome. You know, like you will never, you will never stop being that quirky part. And, and there was something when I heard that, that felt very freeing, not that I ever want to be mean, you know, mean spirited or just grumpy or hardened, uh, calcified in any kind of ways that are really bad for me or bad for people. Mm -hmm. But, but in terms of just some of the quirky qualities that I have, Part of mm. part of mindfulness and, and really learning to be where you are and learning to meet God where you are, which is really what this book is all about. Um, even the subtitle Rekindling Your Faith was something that like, you know, as, as authors, we go back and forth on titles and, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you win and sometimes the, the publisher wins. <laughs> and so I mean, right. I, I like it, but but essentially it's like mindful practices that help you wake up to God mm-hmm. in the moment that you're in. And so I think some of that is self-compassion allows you to be where you are without beating yourself up so badly. Yeah. Well, and, and it's not entirely Buddhist is I was, as I'm writing my book for that's coming out next year, Apatheia from the Desert Fathers is basically the same thing. And uh, with, with God in mind, but um, and then Ignatian has what he calls holy indifference. And so these are really deeply spiritual from the wisdom tradition, from the contemplative tradition, but um, because they're true. Yes. <laughs> it helps. It helps because they're true. Um, and it's it's interesting. Like it's kind of it's also kind of a relinquishing of, I would say, the ego or the false self, as you talk about a bit, quite a bit in the book. Um, I'll just jump into one of the pages so we can get into some of the meat of the book. Yeah. Um, what is on my page fifty nine? You talk about how people. You write. I perceive that few people realize they get to choose where they where their story starts, and maybe you can speak a little to that. Well, it's this sort of this idea that when you're meeting somebody, um, there's this question, you know, what do you do? Or it, no one knows how to start that conversation, really. You know what I mean? Mm. Even how are you? Like these days, I don't know when this is going to get released, but we're, as we record this, we're right at the beginning of the pandemic of the coronavirus and everyone's quarantined and sheltering at home and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, And there's a sense of like when we don't even know how to ask each other how we're doing these days. Right. And so Mm -hmm. this, this idea that when I sit down with people, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm an author, I end up sitting down with lots of people either virtually or in person. And when I ask them the question, uh, I say, would you just, you know, spend some time telling me your story? And what happens is they sometimes get confused about like, um, oh, oh, do you like if they're if they come from a Christian background? Oh, do you want me to tell you my testimony, (laughs) which is sort of like when they, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. first experienced Christ or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I meet people who. Like, uh, I have a friend who is an adult child of an alcoholic. It also, um, he's a recovering addict. And so sometimes he feels like that's where he needs to start. And the reality is when it comes to owning our own story, we get to, we get to choose what we tell people. And, and the first sentence or two 
Um, and that choice that we make in terms of how we ide- self-identify has, mm. has just a tremendous amount to do with um, how we feel about ourselves in the world. And so to be unconsciously sort of stumbling around, not knowing how I'm going to even present myself. And I realized like that can sound like pressure, like, Oh my gosh, well now how am I going to present myself? You know? Um, but I'll give you a quick example. Like, um, sometimes when I meet people, I I don't want to tell them I'm a pastor because sometimes people Mm -hmm. just will automatically like Mm -hmm. they'll hide their beer or they'll, they'll think, (laughs) Oh, did I swear or something like that? You know what I mean? Like if someone asks me, what do I do? I sometimes, I just get playful with that question. Like I'll say, well, you know, I really enjoy going on runs with my 13 year old son. Um, like we just started doing that and it's super fun. And we're talking about things that, that we haven't talked about before. Cause it's just him and I out on the road and it's fun. You know what I mean? And then I look at them and they're like, what? <laughs> or, you know, or so, so I, we, we are allowed to have self authorship and we're allowed to be in whatever story that we're, we find ourselves mm-hmm. and we're allowed not to necessarily self-identify with all of the negative things that have happened to us, unless that's helpful. Um, we're allowed to be where we are and we're allowed to create um, the narrative of where we are, not by making things up, but just by choosing to be in whatever moment that you find yourself in a way, sort of in the first few sentences of me- meeting people, we will unconsciously mm-hmm. sort of reveal our greatest either wounds or hang-ups or um, yep, struggles yep. or our cover-up jobs, <laughs> I suppose. Um, in those first few sentences, what we're hoping to – how we're hoping to position ourselves or or impress people or something. And it's interesting if you call those into question. Um, like I, I know when I've struggled – with, you know, what I'm, what am I doing for a living or what am I doing that brings Mm -hmm. in money? I will, uh, find myself stuttering as I talk to people like that. But if I ever talk about what gives me passion or what I'm, what project, um, is taking my time that is, that I'm passionate about, totally different kind of conversation. And that's probably the more interesting one, right? So yes, I think that those types of, it's just interesting to ask yourself, why am I struggling with this? Because it could be a situation I'm thinking, well, people don't value stuff that that I'm doing for no money. But that's not necessarily true. It's just that I've got this thing stuck in my head. You know, <laughs> people, right. people don't want to know what I do to to make money versus my passion or something. I've heard a lot of people start with, victim stories or abuse stories, which is not a bad thing, except if it's the only thing. Right. Right. And, and it's not a bad thing. Um, but, but I think I agree, like, like unless you're, unless it contain, unless it, it puts you in a cage out of which you can never escape, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's your, that's your single note that you play all the time. I had a friend that used to ask me, he wouldn't ever ask me how I'm doing or how, like when I would see him for, hadn't seen him for a while, he would say, Hey, what are you working on? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I'm very creative and I'm always working on something. So that's a really, 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 for me, that's a fun question to answer. And now I don't have to get into, you know, because honestly for me, Lisa, like this is my big confession. It's not my big confession. It's my small confession. But when people ask me, how you doing? I never know how to answer because (laughs) I'm sort of compelled to tell the truth. That's another Enneagram three thing because we intuitively present the false self. Like Mm. any Enneagram three who's sort of trying to evolve Mm -hmm. is, is sort of addicted. Like I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to say what really is. Mm -hmm. And then I get all crazy in my mind. Like, well, I don't necessarily want to tell this person how I'm really doing because I'm not doing all that well. (laughs) Um, but if I say I'm fine, then that's lying. You know what I mean? So I'm just (laughs) in my mind. It's crazy. It's so (laughs) obsessive, compulsive sort of I wanted to mention what's inside your book, and in case we don't get a chance to kind of touch on these points, I know we won't get to touch on all of them, but um, you have seven practices, and they are attentiveness, ordinariness, simplicity, rhythm, conversation, delight, and restoration. Um, I was particularly touched on page 68, where you talk about mystery and not having to defend it, uh, whether it's in spiritual things or probably in personal growth too. You say, I don't even think you're supposed to believe mystery. Maybe you can only hope to participate in it. I love how you touch on some of these points that are hard to get, sometimes get our hands around. And there is a second portion uh, that kind of fits into this. I'll kind of stick the two together. Um, On page 82, I think you just say it as M-U-M-U. And maybe you could explain that. That is a really delightful option right there. Okay. So uh, Moo, uh, it's in the conversation chapter. And Moo is a Japanese word that's hard to define or describe, but it essentially means uh, not this or that, not A or B. Uh, It means no right thing, which is hard to describe too, but it, it... If you're in a conversation and someone asks you a question and you can tell that they're fishing for a dualistic answer, are you for Trump or against Trump? Are you for um, me or against me? Do you think this is safe or dangerous? Are you going to vote for this person or that person? Mm -hmm. Whatever the case may be. And when you sense that whatever dualistic answer that you could give would not be an interesting conversation. It would lead to an argument, debate, dead end. You can say moo, basically. And that's asking for a better question. Mm. (laughs) Um, And this comes from Robert Persig's book, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Mm -hmm. first. That's when I first read about it way back in college. Mm -hmm. But then it got resurrected for me in an interview with Patrick Otuma, who is the most delightful poet, Irish mm-hmm. poet, uh, who's just come out with a new podcast called Poetry Unbound that you have to listen to. It's so mm-hmm. gorgeous. But Padraig um, was talking to Krista Tippett in an On Being interview, and he resurrected it again mm-hmm. with, you know, so, so the art of conversation, the art of interesting conversation uh, is about um, doing essentially what Jesus of Nazareth did 
whenever he was asked a dualistic question that was going to lead to an either or a black and white answer, a right or wrong answer, he would, he never said moo. Uh, but the, when he would follow it up with a deeper question, uh, that was usually a paradox, right? And so a paradox is basically a, a contradiction that's designed to lead your dualistic mind into a dead end where, where it goes, what? I don't, I don't compute. And in that moment where your mind is saying, I don't compute, it, it gives it enough time, uh, to consider a more robust way of thinking about something that previously you would only think about in terms of, um, you know, this or that. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm a part of a church right now, a small church where, you know, 100, 150, 200 people on a Sunday. Uh, and we're going through the conversation about will we be LGBTQIA plus affirming or not? Because we were part of a denomination right now that isn't. And but many of our people would like us to be. And so we gathered this group of people together, um, both elders and lay people to form a kind of listening committee to create experiences for people in our congregation to hear each other, listen to each other, listen to different points of view, discover, you know, where it is that we are. And this listening committee is maybe eight people. And over the course of the months that we have been talking about this, um, one of the men in the group came out as transgender. Mm. And he, now she, told us about why she was coming out, what it means for her. And this listening committee was made up of people with various points of view and theological perspectives on LGBTQIA inclusion. So it truly was a diverse group. And it was fascinating to watch some of the more conservative folks, Mm -hmm. um, their perspective change from a dualistic either or to a much more robust understanding of this is complex. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this doesn't necessarily fit into either or categories. And so move an invitation to think about something with the complexity that, that it deserves to be thought about. Right. And, and most things in life are involve enough nuance that the question is sort of an ongoing one. It's sort of an yes. unfolding question. Yes. Um, I'm sure the people in your congregation who are very conservative, maybe non-affirming, might have been non-affirming theoretically in an abstract way. Then they know somebody or they care about somebody. Oh, this is a person with a life who has feelings, who wants a family, church family. Oh, it's a little different now. You know, it's it's interesting because yes. it's an unfolding question. It's not like, well, no or yes. It's it's true that there has to be room for the in between or the the imagining and the unfolding of something. And I think what's funny is we're living in a time where that seems extremely partisan, but at the same time yeah. we're running against up against complexity that is so obviously impossible to to fix with binary solutions or, you know, oh, Republican solutions or Democrat solutions or yes or no. You know, it just doesn't work. I think it's, it's kind of glaring that 
the old ways of, of trying to maneuver through things. Or I don't even know if they're old ways or just stunted ways. But because um, some people have always kind of understood these things. It's not so much old. Uh, but but just giving ourselves enough space to think, I don't have to think about these two choices, actually. I those are in a way false binaries or false choices because there's probably right. a hundred other ways to think about this. And if I ask somebody else or ask somebody who doesn't look like me or isn't from here, they'd probably have a really interesting take. And I don't know that we even consider that. We just think, oh, it's you were either for me or you're against me. It's like, really though? <laughs> because I, right. I wonder if, I wonder if it's, um, you know, the blinders are on in those cases. Well, I think I, I, I love, first of all, I love your phrase unfolding. It's the, the, these things are unfolding, which is a, is a very evocative picture of uncertainty, mystery. I don't know yet. I'm, I know now I know more now than I used to, but I know less now than I will, you know, that's unfolding, mm. uh, makes me think of all those things. But I also think that like even back to the LGBTQIA inclusion conversation or anything that can can lend itself to at first thinking dualistically or thinking with that there's only two options. Mm-hmm. Um, m- you know, most of us, most of us think we believe what we believe because we've arrived at those beliefs based on rational thought and rational decision making based on that, that we've gathered up all the information that there is to gather and then made our choice. Mm-hmm. But that's just simply not true. <laughs> that We are absolutely governed by our social system and by mm-hmm. our, you know, um, and by our predisposition in our minds to be, to be when we don't transcend the mind and get down into the soul or the body level, the mind can only think of binary solutions, this or that right or wrong. That's what the mind does. And if we stay there, then, you know, we're, we're just going to be stuck in our amygdala hijack and the prehistoric, you know, way of like, mm-hmm. I better not go by that blueberry bush because last time I did, my cousin got mauled by a saber toothed tiger. And so mm-hmm. stay away from the mulberry bush or blueberry bush. Um, in that's such a funny example, but like in many ways, our minds are still stuck in the, in, in a very prehistoric ways of thinking, but we live in a world that's so complex in terms of what we can read and see now online. And so there's a part of us that intuitively knows it can't be this or that. I mean, based on the amount of opinions we can read on Twitter, Facebook, on the news. It, so I think we, we get stuck in this like we intuitively know it can't be that unnuanced or uncomplex, but we haven't yet been guided into a way of being that's different. And I think that's where mindfulness really, really helps because it, it like practicing meditation, for example, you know, for five or 10 minutes every day where you consciously return to your breath when you find yourself wandering, really what that is, is, is training, uh, your mind to not be in charge all the time. 
And so the more we meditate, the more just in our normal everyday moments where we find ourselves completely pissed off at the person in front of us that just barely cut us off, but didn't really, then we can say, okay, hold on, return to our breath mind. You're you're not in danger, actually. We're not in danger right now. No one's going to kill us. Right. It's okay. Yeah. And, and you're talking about the reactive mind, like the unconscious, right. like, I'll have to murder you and not even think yeah. about it kind of mind. Right. 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 Yeah. Mm, that's good. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, and uh, there's a lot of different, like you, you talk about the different practices of being mindful in your book, and there are a lot of ways to come at that, but it really does create a pause or a period of reflection that you get better at, just like you get better at exercising right. that creates this, I would maybe like call it soul space or something for you can have enough more wisdom or sense to go. There's probably other ways of seeing this instead of just thinking, Hey, you know, just assuming malice, you know, it's like the right. typical, like, Hey, they're taking all the toilet paper because they hate me, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, oh gosh. And we especially do this, don't we, with people that we live with and love? Like, yeah, oh that's my, the worst. I just, I just got so defensive with my wife about something that was so minor that she didn't mean didn't say, and I just immediately took mm. offense mm -hmm. at what she said yeah. and got so mad. Like, how yeah. dare you? You know, like, oh my gosh, that's totally reactive mind. <laughs> and I think that I've, I've been learning slowly, too slowly, but that if you think it's personal, it's probably your problem. It's probably your mistake yeah. to think it's personal. So in those times when I've taken things personally, and I think that this this is pretty normal, but also it's it's worse if you've had trauma or abuse or you have been neglected or something has happened to you, then you're kind of ready to, to see it and everything. But um, it's going to be like, hey, why would you do that? And the person hasn't, unfortunately, the person hasn't even thought about you all day, basically. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. It has nothing to do with you. And, and if you go along with, and maybe it did have a little tiny it to do with you. But sure. if you go along with the idea that people aren't trying to hurt me, people are, you know, people are basically thinking of themselves, whether that's yep. good or bad, that's just kind of how it is. If you begin to adjust your life that way, you'll think, wow, is everybody nicer or something? And it's just because you've, you know, loosened your grasp on that you, on the reality that you've been perceiving that seems like everybody's kind of aggressive. You know, it's yes. just that you've been aggressive, right? So yes. it's, it's really interesting how those mindfulness practices will start to dial you in a little clearer on a reality that isn't so pointed or so, you know, vicious. But I don't know that we give ourselves like in a typical, in a typical day in, in America, you're constantly distracted, probably, at what time do you have to be mindful unless you go, no, I'm carving this out. I'm going to be mindful. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And I think that's where um, mindfulness is tricky in the sense that I think we can get so, it, it can sound so impossible and heady. Like how in the world will I 
even remember to try to be self-compassionate by watching myself on a TV show as I get fired from my job. Like (laughs) really? Like that just sounds made up, you know? Um, but I think that's where the practices of, um, so the first practice that I talk about is attentiveness and, um, and these, so these really are practices. And, and the thing about mindfulness is that it, it isn't about, see, we always want to do it perfectly, but really mindfulness is about that, that moment that you realize you're lost in your reaction and you go, wait a minute. that's mindfulness. Like you're, you're, you're already doing it. Like when you can arrest the forward momentum of, of the chaos of being swept away by every single thing that happens to you, when you go, hold on, I'm a character in a TV show. I'm darling. Right. So attentiveness, how, how I describe it is to become aware and awake to the present moment. I practice attentiveness, learning to return to here so I can find God waiting for me with love in the eternal now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now, lest you think that's super, super theological and heady, uh, um, one of the stories I tell in the book is I'm, it's November, I'm outside raking the leaves for a willow tree because they drop really late. So it's, they're kind of frozen. The ground is frozen. My son, Ben, who's like four at the time, he goes over to the fence and he's like, daddy, come here. Oh my gosh, daddy, come here. And I walk over and he's looking at this, <laughs> this little plastic red rose that someone has <laughs> planted <laughs> in the ground, like behind this little pine tree. Mm-hmm. And it's so bizarre. Cause like, like I'm thinking who would do that? I mean, it's not even out in the middle of anything. It's like kind of really hidden away. So someone <laughs> took the time to plant a, a bright red plastic rose, like in the <laughs> most obscure spot that no one would ever see. Mm-hmm. But Ben is just entranced by it. Ben is like, dad, look at this rose. It's so beautiful. And in that moment, I really was, I like, I noticed that I, I, what I was doing was, um, trying to get the leaves raked so that I could Mm. be done and do something else. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I was trying to do. Now, mindfulness would say, rake the leaves to rake the leaves. Right. And, and that is true, but you rake the leaves to rake the leaves so that you are, you can be attentive to Mm -hmm. the many gifts that are flowing all around you, like Wi-Fi signals that you're invisible, (laughs) that are invisible Mm -hmm. to you unless you return to where you are. And so Ben helped me to see like, oh my gosh. Um, And the gift for me, you know, it wasn't even the red rose. The gift for me was seeing my son, Ben, Mm -hmm. who was so lost in wonder and awe. And it invited me to wonder about, could I get lost in wonder and awe Mm -hmm. as I'm driving to work? You know, Mm -hmm. like I remember one time I was driving to work and this guy sped by me driving this like 30 year old car and the car is just filled with like stacks of paper. I mean, just floor to ceiling filled. And this guy had his window down. He, I remember he had a, like he was smoking a cigarette. He had a headband on and he is singing at the top of his lungs. (laughs) And I am just like, that 
is the best thing in the world, right? <laughs> like if I ever <laughs> write a living, novel. He's living his yeah, life large yes, right there. Yeah, he's living very large. And like, like sometimes I'm I'm out running and I'm listening to music and then I pass by someone and I'm like, oh, I'm self-conscious. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't sing out loud. But, but then like there's a part of me that just wants to go like, why? What, what, what? like just like, what is it that hold us, hold, holds us back? Um, right. And so like, Returning to here, there's a there's a quick I'll I'll tell it quickly, but there's a story about in the Hebrew scriptures about Jacob. He's estranged from his brother Esau because he swindled him out of his birthright and out of his father's blessing, and and this big reunion is going to happen, and Jacob is afraid that he's going to get killed because mm-hmm. there's this massive army from Esau approaching, and and so he he does the really brave thing. He sends his family out <laughs> in between the army and him and he stays on the other side of this one river and he goes to sleep and he's worried and and he he sleeps he puts the stone underneath his head and he has this dream of angels going up and down this ladder but when he wakes up he says he has this statement that he says um he says oh my gosh essentially god was in this place and i was not aware of it Mm. so paradoxically Jacob has to fall asleep to realize that God is with him in that moment. And what God says to him is so precious. Like I'm with you always. I will return you to this land. I will bless you. And this isn't a moment where he's really, we can infer that he's really realizing what a, what a bastard he's been his whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and yet God meets him in, in the eternal now, but he had to fall asleep to wake up to it. You know, and that's, that's again, that's again, the paradox. And so this word for place in the Hebrew is called hamakom and it means to stand. And so, and interestingly, the rabbis, uh, of the many names for God that they used, Hamakom was one of the names for God. Like, so God is the place where you stand. Mm. Um, and when we look at it that way, returning to here is returning to the God that is eternal outside of time, which means that in the right here, right now is really the only place you're ever going to meet the divine, you know? And I just find that delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I really do. I, I yeah. really do. Um, and it's available at any moment. You, yeah. so, um, I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And it's kind of like the, the verse, if, you know, in English, it's be still know that I'm God. But if you just, yeah. if you just pause you know, you're in the presence of God. You're always, you always are, but you'll really kind of get it if you do that pause thing. Yes, <laughs> um, and yes. you, you do talk about um, the two kinds of time. Uh, Kairos, is, is it Kairos time and Kronos? Yeah, Kairos, Kairos, Kairos. and Kronos. And um, you're talking about your son and kind of that Kairos time, uh, or maybe it's like opportune time or these little moments of, of the perfect moment, um, which, you know, can dot our lives and don't maybe have anything to do with chronological time. Um, it's, it's really a, a beautiful point you you mentioned in your book. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, so um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel rightly points out in his beautiful book, The Sabbath, that the first thing that's called holy in the scriptures is not a person, not even God. It's not a place. It's time itself. It's like, um, it, and when it's referred to as uh, the Sabbath is holy. Um, and so um, 
the idea of chronos time and kairos time chronos time is the perpetual it's clock time it's the date on the milk carton that expires on april 3rd it's the it's the birthday that i just talked about when i turned 50 that's all chronos time and there's a there's a like in the in ancient greek culture the 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 symbol or the 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 moniker for Kronos is, is the grim reaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like Kronos is, is what will kill you. It's running out, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, of course we need Kronos time. I mean, that's like, you know, we need to get up on time and go to bed and all that stuff. It's, it's not that it's, again, we need to break out of the dualistic categories. It's not that Kronos is bad and Kairos is good. It's just that Kronos is not the only way to look at time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we get stuck in Kronos time, then we, we're always waiting for Mm. like, think of like, I mean, um, think of when you're anticipating a vacation, right? It's like, Oh my gosh, I can't wait for vacation. I can't wait. But then you get on it and it's like, Oh, it's a seven day vacation. Have you ever been like, Oh, it's day three. Shoot. It's only four days left. Oh, it's only four days. left. (laughs) I got to soak all the, you know, um, and then when you get back from vacation, you, you, you realize you're completely exhausted <laughs> and you need a vacation for your vacation, yeah. you know? So that's, that's Kronos time. Kairos mm. time, Kairos time is, is the belief that something beautiful and expansive and filled with potential could happen in this moment. And so it's, it's really what happened when I told the story about my son, Ben, discovering the red rose. Um, but it's also something as small as the realization that happens when you realize you're, that someone likes you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever been in that moment where someone looks at you in a certain way or someone encourage you encourages you in a certain way? It's sort of surprising. And you go, oh my gosh, Wow. Um, or the, uh, the other day, um, we have this 10 month old puppy, <laughs> golden doodle. She's so awesome. Um, but it was like six in the morning and she was barking, barking, barking at something. I was like, ah, shut up, Lily. You got to shut up. You're going to wake everyone up. But I went outside and she's barking in, in our backyard or six deer, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh. Right. So something as small as that, uh, Jake, back to Jacob and behold, the Lord, the Lord was in this place and I was not aware. That's a Kairos moment that's exploding mm-hmm. with life. Um, if you follow the church calendar mm-hmm. this week, the, the gospel text is the story coming up in on March 29th in mm-hmm. year A of the Revised Common Lectionary. The story mm-hmm. is when Lazarus dies. So in the story of Lazarus, uh, Jesus uh, gets told that his friend has died and everyone is weeping, including Jesus. And then Lazarus is raised from the dead by Jesus. And this is a Kairos moment, not only because the friend that they've lost is now alive again, but it's a Kairos moment because when we, when someone looks at the possibility that someone else's grave clothes are, are taken off and they emerge resurrected in a sense, it gives us hope that the things that are dead and dying in us and around us and on us maybe could be resurrected too. 
And so when we read the scriptures that way, especially a story like that where resurrection happens and, you know, the, our dualistic mind jumps in and says, could that really happen? I don't really believe it. And that's fine to wrestle with. But the question is, do you believe that what's dead and dying in you is doomed to die and be dead? Or do you believe it's possible that they could be made new? that that the the worst parts about you the parts that you're feeling that are the most dead and dying might change uh that's a kairos moment um when these stories that we hear about in you know whether it be in the bible or elsewhere when they become bigger than just did they happen or not when they become stories that we can find ourselves in that we can find hope in it's interesting to think about the resurrection as this one-off thing, but in God's economy, in God's Kairos time, that's just normal. Exactly. The power of the resurrection is alive in us. And and really, I think as we come into springtime, we're like, oh yeah, that's right. Nothing's really dead. You know, <laughs> right, it's all right. coming back to life. And um that's just how God works. God brings things to life again. Uh, it's it's powerful, but we sometimes, you know, like you talked about starting from a different story, we'll start with the story that doesn't have a chance to have resurrection, maybe, or doesn't get there yet or something. Right. You mentioned mystery mm -hmm. right before. And what I wrote about like mystery is, is, is not something that you defend, mm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or you fight to believe it's, it's, it's something that you somehow participate with. It's in the rhythm chapter. And I sort mm -hmm. of say, it's almost like learning to tap your foot along uh, to the beat of mystery mm -hmm. and then getting lost in the song. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about how jazz music has this interesting juxtaposition, juxtaposition of everybody knows the basic melody and, and structure of the song and they're following that. But there's also this room for improvisation from the piano player or the bass player or the lead guitarist or the drummer and they'll go crazy and they'll just go off on some riff that's completely extemporaneous while everyone else is holding it all together uh, by the shared understood rhythm. Mm. And that's kind of how I understand participating with mystery, right? That, that, that we have a part to play in creating reality for sure. That's our improvisation. That's our being ourselves in the world. That's our bringing our unique gifts to play and to bear in the world that really make a difference in our own lives and in the universe and in people's lives, every small act of kindness that we do. Um, but we also have to believe that it's not, it's not like up to us to keep the universe spinning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the, that's the beat that that's the like mystery, the divine God, whatever you want to call it, keeps, uh, keeps the beat going. Uh, and when we get that confused, when I feel like it's up to me to keep the beat going, that's when I get lost. Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting with that for, for a minute. That, <laughs> that's really that's really good. I need to chew on that. In your final chapter called Restoration, you have this 
you, you talk about the prodigal son parable that Jesus tells yeah. us, and this is kind of a backdrop or a motto maybe for a lot of the things um, that that you encounter in your world, it seems, and that we could bring along. You say that um, a mantra like, you are always with me and all I have is yours. I thought this was a, a way to understand the presence of God and our belovedness and, and our relationship to God as as God's children. Um, and maybe you could finish up with our conversation with explaining some of what you mean by um, that phrase and how it relates. Yeah. Well, so the the story, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's typically called, it's found in the 15th chapter of Luke in the Gospels, and Jesus tells it. And, and, and so parables are um, stories that are kind of like those Russian um, dolls that you, like the, it looks like one doll, then you open it up and then there's another doll inside. Then you open that up and there's a smaller doll inside and it goes all the way down to this little coffee bean sized, you know? Mm -hmm. So the way we understand parables is that, that it'll, you can go as deep as you want to go. Uh, that there are limitless layers of understanding. And so the, the, I hesitate to use the word wrong, but like the wrong way to understand a parable is that there's one meaning mm -hmm. or there's one layer. And so the parable of, of the prodigal son is a story of this father who has these two sons and the younger son demands his inheritance early and he, he um, squanders it on wild living, you know, and whatever. Comes back um, penniless and, and broken and gets received back into the household, um, gets thrown a party. And then the older son, of course, is the, the, the responsible person. And he understandably gets really, really upset that uh, he's been holding the bag all these years and and that some of his inheritance has been squandered by the sons. And be, because what would have been understood in the first century is that is that a father... Because honor was everything. Honor was the entire currency for first century Near Eastern culture. And anyone in that village that would have understood that the father let the son go with the inheritance, mm -hmm. shame would have been brought on that family. Mm -hmm. But then any vestige of, of honor that maybe might have crept back in would have been erased forever when that son got welcomed back in. Mm -hmm. And when that party would have been thrown. And so part of what's going on here is that um, the older son is, he cannot live with the shame that is now on his family. Cannot, cannot live with it. It's not just that he feels like he's been treated unfairly. He feels like I am, and I am, I am the recipient of all kinds of dishonor and I did everything right, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's this poignant moment at the end of the story. So the party's going on, the younger son is back in the family, ring on his finger, robe on his back, the fattened calf's been killed. Um, the people come to the party, even though they think, you know, the father's a total loser. But then the father notices that the older son is not at the party, so he goes outside and he finds him and he enters into conversation with him and it's, and it's such a gorgeous, it's such a gorgeous picture because maybe for the first time in his life, and we're inferring all this, but we can't because it's a parable, right? We're supposed to infer things and imagine things. Maybe for the first time in his life, the older son is honest. 
he says the the true thing, not what he should say. And he pours it all out to this father and he's so angry and he's so upset. And actually he's so ashamed of his father and he can't even stand to be around him really. But he doesn't know what to do with that because his, his, his future is tied up in this family, no matter what, because that's how first century culture works. So he's stuck. What does he do? And, but he's, but he's done doing the right things. It's time to do the honest thing. So he does it, you know, he does it. (sighs) What's going to happen? What's the father going to say? And the father says this gorgeous thing. Because the son is saying, you've never given me so much as a a skinny goat for a party. I've been working for you all these years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the father says, my son, I'm always with you. And all I have is yours. Now, that phrase is so powerful because part of it is the elder son. That's what he's struggling with. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm always with you. I'm ashamed of you. All I have is yours. Well, what do you have to offer me? You know, I mean, that's what he, that's what we can infer that he's thinking. But then we realize what the father has to offer this older son is this radical humility and love that if he could just let it in would transform everything about his life. You know, like the, the, the fact that the father was willing to go through that shame to show love is actually precisely what the older son needs. Mm. And then the story ends with just the screen goes to black. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) We aren't told how the younger, how the older son responds. We aren't told if he goes into the party. We aren't told if he understands that the father has resources to give him that would change his life like forever. And because we aren't told the ending, we can enter into it. We can imagine how we would, what we would say to God, to our own father, to our own mother, to whoever it is that screwed us and that ruined our lives. Mm -hmm. We can just pour it out. We can say the honest thing, not the, not what we should say. And this mantra is a way to understand the kind of God that goes beyond understanding. But when we pour out our anger, which we can freely, there is a reality that the divine God um, has something for us in that moment. Resources, I'm always with you and all I have is yours. That if we could just see it and let it in, it would it would comfort us in a way that goes almost beyond understanding. And so what I do in the book is I, I try to help us readers myself when we're in those moments where we're lost in self judgment, pain, it's really okay to, and you actually have to, you have to be there. You have to welcome that right? There's a welcoming prayer by Thomas Keating that that talks about like the importance of being in that feeling and feeling it fully and welcoming it instead of running from it or fighting it. But then the mantra, I'm always with you and all I have is yours can bring us to the place where we can 
let that feeling, which is impermanent, we can let it go. And we can welcome the resources that God has for us in that moment of letting go. And I think that's what's, that's what's happening like with Jacob in that moment where he says, behold, the Lord was in this place and I, I was not aware. He's just, you know, later on, Jacob gets a blessing after wrestling with quote unquote, a man and he gets named. Um, you know, I think that's the same thing. Like the divine God has something for us that we can only receive paradoxically mm-hmm. when we get in touch with all the ways in which we wanted God to come through for us and God didn't mm-hmm. or life or the universe or a marriage or a job or the book that didn't sell the copies we wanted it to sell. Um, and then we can realize there is something deeper, something bigger, mm-hmm. um, something else mm-hmm. that we can receive in this moment and in no other mm. um, by returning to here. Thank you for that. It it does seem like the older son's problem is a problem that we encounter a lot where we think we don't have enough or we got cheated. And why wasn't God looking out for us? But, you know, somebody else who doesn't deserve something gets a pass or maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't fit exactly into the template of our lives. But, but those feelings of feeling like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, yeah. do, do the bad guys win? <laughs> Does crime pay? <laughs> um, yeah. And those feelings of, um, that, that I think many of us have, if we're, if we're doing, you know, I don't know, not cheating on my taxes, but, Oh, apparently you could cheat on your taxes and it doesn't even matter <laughs> or whatever <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then God's there to say, um, you know, I'm with you all the time and, and I have everything that you need is kind of, uh, interesting. And then what are you going to do about it? it? You're right. It's just left up to you. It's like, it's yeah. just left in your lap. Here you go. You can step into that. However you decide really. Yeah. And I think this, this again, comes back to mystery and it comes back to something we were talking about before we press record and in, in, in that, that our understanding of God, it will, will always be limited. It'll always, like, we'll always put God in a box, you know, right. <laughs> that's the only way we can understand God. And then, but then the question becomes when we, when we encounter those moments, like the older sons sitting outside of that party, having just vented, will we exchange that used up box for a bigger one. And that's the central question of faith for me. That's the central question of faith, not what do I believe or what do I, what am I certain of? It's what am I, what, in what ways am I willing to expand my views of God, of self, of other? Um, That seems to me to be the real work of faith. It's about evolving and waking up to the reality that God is limitless. Mm-hmm. But as Richard Rohr says, that doesn't, like God is mystery. It doesn't mean that God is unknowable. That means that God is endlessly knowable. Mm. I like that. I mm-hmm. really like that. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Well, this would probably be a good time to wrap up, Steve, but... Um, tell people where they can find your podcast and also other places they can find you online. Yeah. Well, first of all, Lisa, thank you. This was so, so fun for me. You are such a great 
conversationalist and you found a way into some of the depths of what I hoped was in my book in a way that was very like fulfilling and encouraging for me. So thank you for kind of plumbing the depths. (laughs) Oh, it's my treat. Really. I love this stuff. It's really fun. Um, but no, anyone who wants to get in touch with my work, really the best way is just to go to my website, steveweens.com. That's Steve and then W-I-E-N as in Nancy, S as in steve.com. You can find a link to my podcast, which is called This Good Word. And um, I have a lot of fun doing what you do, interviewing a lot of people, but also sometimes riffing on just different things that I'm thinking these days. Uh, This good word is about reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. So it's sort of, you know, the ongoing work of of, uh, moving past dualism. Mm and into mystery. And then also on my website, you can find links to my three books, my first book, Beginnings, my second book, Whole, and then my book, Shining Like the Sun, which we've been talking about right now. There's links to, if you're an indie indie buyer, you can click on a link to where you can find local bookstores. Um, and I would encourage you to do that if you can, uh, but also Amazon, Barnes and Noble and others. Great. Well, Steve, you're a kindred spirit, so I hope we can keep in touch and, uh, continue to explore these things and do another episode sometime and especially if you get another book going the doors always open just reach out well i think the next step is for me to have you on my podcast that would be very cool let's do that (laughs) i'm getting excited about it it will be really fun when that finally wraps up oh it's gonna be fun 